A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. Podcasts. And welcome to Planet Normal, a Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Co-pilot Pearson and I are having a well-deserved summer break from steering the rockets of right thinking. But to help keep you sane, dear citizens of Planet Normal, during the month of August, we'll be bringing you some classic interviews from our Planet Normal archive over the last year. The discussions we've had on our flying refuge of reasoned views. Back in January, we invited author and comedian Constantine Kissin onto the rockets. Together with fellow comedian Francis Foster, Constantine founded the popular Trigonometry podcast. He told us, as somebody who came to the UK as a child from Soviet Russia, why the UK needs to do more to tackle illegal immigration. Constantine also shares his thoughts on the war in Ukraine. I started by asking Constantine why he wrote his book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Because I felt that someone should remind people in the West that the West is actually good. The West has some values that are important. I think we've forgotten that we have values and certainly attempting to define them or defend them is seen as some sort of subversive activity. And I wanted to to use my immigrant privilege, if you like, to actually say some very obvious things about what makes the West good and why it's worth defending. And tell us why it is that your background as a comedian gives you a window on current affairs more broadly. You've made this transformation from being a pretty successful stand-up comedian to somebody who really is now a major commentator on all kinds of cultural and civic issues. How does your comedy brain help you with your current affairs analysis? Well, I think one of the first things that comedy teaches you is you go on stage in front of lots of people. And so you get to find out how people feel about certain things in terms of how they react to the things that you're saying on stage and the jokes that you make. But I think what drove me first and foremost into into commenting about some of the issues that I talk about was the stifling atmosphere that I personally saw in comedy. And I was never a particularly offensive comedian. I was never someone who felt that, you know, they couldn't make the jokes that they wanted to make. But there was an overall culture where it was becoming quite clear that what I thought was this quintessential Western idea that we have freedom of speech was definitely something that was not shared by many people, including among my peers and colleagues in comedy. So that was the first part of it. And even when I did stand up, it was always from a more satirical point of view. I was trying to comment on the things that were happening in society using comedy uh, to do that. So it's been a fairly natural transition for me. I'm a huge fan of comedy, but I know you feel that comedy in the UK, which has really been a sort of global superpower of comedy over many generations, is now at a low ebb. Why do you think that is, Constantine? And what is this phrase that you use a lot in your book, please clap comedy? 
Yes. So I think there are a couple of reasons that I think we should think about. First of all, as in any business, as in any creative industry, as in anything, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And if you decide that instead of picking funny comedians to put on television screens, you need to pick comedians based on other characteristics, whether it's the background or the gender or the race or the sexuality or whatever, you will reduce the quality. And we've seen with the non-renewal of Mock the Week and the Mash Report that as you you know dilute the brand, uh, people stop watching. And, and I saw this with my own eyes. So I think one of them is it's a thing that, that happens in many areas of life in the West at the moment is, you know, the focus on diversity becomes so extreme that you forget that you're actually supposed to be making some kind of product. Another thing, of course, is the advent of social media and the culture wars that came on on the back of that you've got a situation where audience members uh, feel much more entitled and they're more powerful now to complain because if you know in the past uh, 20 years ago you complained about a joke in a comedy club everyone just went ah it's a comedy club well now you can go on twitter you can go on facebook and then it might become some kind of you know story and whatever let's move on to immigration which is really the heart of your of your book it's kind of the recurring theme throughout a book which covers many different aspects of your life as an immigrant and aside from the fact that you're an immigrant this subject close to both our hearts we've talked about it a lot over the years Uh, we both have a very positive view of the UK as people whose families have come to the UK you first generation me second generation let's talk about why so many immigrants to the UK are so mindful of the dangers of these small boats. Some people on the left will say, Suela Braverman, our Home Secretary, how can she possibly be so anti people coming across on small boats when she was an immigrant herself? What do you make of that argument? Well, first of all, they're not immigrants. An immigrant is someone who applies for a visa or indefinite leave to remain and is allowed and chosen by the people of this country to come. If the first act of entering this country that you take is to break its laws, uh, you're not an immigrant. You may be a refugee and we should provide some support to some refugees who are genuinely fleeing war and conflict and things of that nature. But this is one of the things that really bothers me. We must not conflate people breaking the laws of this country and coming here illegally with lawful immigration because one of the things that will happen over time is the backlash that will be fomented as a result of people breaking the law and coming into this country illegally will apply to all immigrants including people who followed the rules of this country and to me this is a fundamental basic concept that I don't understand how anybody can fail to understand it is up to the people of Britain to decide who comes here, in what number, from which country, to do what and where. And the people of Britain did not vote to have people coming across the channel in smoke boats and disappearing into the ether as the moment they arrive here, or to be put up in expensive hotels at public expense. So I think first and foremost, we should separate the issue of immigration from the issue of illegal immigration, which is what you're talking about. And then why do so many immigrants have concerns about these issues? Well, because we know that the types of people who would get in a boat and come here most likely are not the sort of people that we'd want in this country in the first place. There will be some, as I say, among them who are legitimate refugees, uh, but they're likely to be the small minority. And, you know, every society has some people who are undesirable to be allowed into this country. And I think that's why we have an immigration system to decide who comes and who doesn't. And the people of Britain vote for 
politicians in order to address that issue. And I think the biggest issue, whatever my own views of this issue are, the biggest problem we have is the politics and the policies and the reality on the ground and in the water does not reflect the democratic decisions of the people of Britain. And that is the biggest problem in all of this. You talk about the power of language here in the UK. People who are illegal immigrants are often conflated with people who are refugees. Many people say that all the people in small boats are refugees when clearly they're not, though there may be some, as you also acknowledge. In the States, what used to be called illegal aliens, a phrase that everyone understood, they're now called by some people increasingly undocumented Americans, as if it's America's fault that they haven't got their paperwork in order. Why do you think it is that this language evolves and that much of the media encourages the use of this language? I think the reason the language evolves is that language is a way to change how we talk about certain things. So if you describe people as they are, and you know this applies to other issues, I mean, we increasingly talk about what are illegal immigrants, that is not immigrants at all. They're illegal people, people who break the laws we've just discussed. As if they are all refugees, then it necessitates a different approach to dealing with them. And you can say, well, these are all people who are refugees and, and we must let them all in or we must have compassion. And we, we must have compassion always for people, of course. But we also have the rule of law in this country and the law of the land applies. And so I think the way that language is, is used, particularly in the media, is a determined effort to change the way that we talk about policy in order that we weaponize people's empathy on the one hand and also that we can demonize people who attempt to tackle these issues as being uncaring and lacking compassion. Constantine, another time when I kind of punched the air in agreement with you when I was reading your book was when you cited polling evidence, and I've seen similar polling evidence, that the UK is actually, when it comes to tolerance towards and respect for immigrant members of the community, the UK is the most welcome and the most tolerant country in the whole of Europe, including the Scandinavian countries. In the world, only New Zealand and Canada are more tolerant of and welcoming towards immigrants. That's according to polling evidence from the Pew Global Institute, who I know you'll be aware of. Yet when people like you and people like me talk about the UK being a tolerant place, we get lampooned, don't we? You see me on the stage at Kilconomics arguing that as a sort of plastic paddy, as the Irish call us, I actually think, despite all kind of historic wrongs and grotesque relations between the UK and Ireland over the years, actually my family's experience has been constantly improving and all in all, England has really welcomed us. Why is it that it's so difficult for the people who have actually experienced the immigration, people like your family and mine, to get a fair hearing? I think it's because it doesn't match the narrative that people want to advance. I mean, Eric Hoffer has this great phrase that every great movement begins as a cause, becomes a business and eventually degenerates into a racket. And we've got to a point where we've gone from, you know, in the 60s, 70s and 80s and so on, where there were a lot of problems in this country with intolerance of others. And I know your family would have experienced some of this as Irish immigrants. We've gone from that to a society that is extraordinarily tolerant of others. But the institutions that were created, the agendas that were created, the opportunities were created for people to engage in race 
participating and so on, they are still there. And even though the problem is largely fixed, the people who've benefited from that entire process still need jobs, you know, and that's why we continue to obsess about superficial diversity instead of actual diversity of people with different opinions and different points of view. Instead, we obsess with you know, superficial things like skin color and gender and sex and race and all that irrelevant stuff, in my opinion, because that's what our media institutions want. That's what they benefit from. The way this Ngozi-Fulani story was covered at the tail end of last year, to me, was just a perfect example of how demented our conversation about race has become. And that's because... That was the interaction that she had with Lady Susan Hussey in Buckingham Palace, the where were you from scandal. And you'll remember, it was the story of a woman being slightly inappropriately asked where she's really from. And the BBC and other mainstream media in this country covered it like it was a terrorist attack. And I'm not exaggerating. They gave it headline coverage on the front page. And that's because this is what gets attention. This is the, the, the media narrative. And it's, as you know, completely, completely, completely unrepresentative of the way that people in this country relate to each other. This is not a racist country. Black people and ethnic minorities like me are not walking around constantly being assaulted or abused or mistreated or whatever. It doesn't mean there aren't a few racists, as there are in every country, but it's what sells, it's what gets people's attention. And as I say, there are a number of people who benefit from this being an ongoing conversation so that they can be diversity czars on NHS boards and so on and so forth. And so I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. People claim this country is intolerant and then they benefit from that and then the the conversation is perpetuated. But I think it is so far divorced from the experience of ordinary people. That's why when you and I do say it, while of course there are some people who will push back against it, actually the vast majority of people know it's true. And the feedback I had from people from every background, you know, black, white, etc., to the book proves that to me. In a nutshell, Constantine, what does it mean to you that you, a kid born in Russia, During the Soviet Union, you've been able to come here to the UK. You've been able to make Britain your home physically and emotionally and psychologically. What does Britain mean to you? Opportunity. I think that's what it means to every immigrant who comes here wanting to better themselves and to contribute to the country to which they've come. You know, the thing that I'm really proud of is the Trigonometry, the YouTube channel and podcast that I host with Francis Foster. It's now a small business that employs lots of people, people from all sorts of walks of life who otherwise would not have had a job or would not have had as fulfilling a job as they do now. You know, I think that's really the promise this country offers people. Come here, make it your home and seize the opportunities that are everywhere around you. Make something of yourself, contribute, pay your taxes, add to the conversation, whatever is the the method by which you're going to contribute. You know, this has become an unfashionable thing to say, but I think the job of immigrants, first and foremost, is to come and embed themselves into the culture, to integrate and to make sure that they are worthy of the opportunity that they've been given because there are billions of people around the world who would quite happily swap places with us. They don't have that opportunity. And because we do, I think it's really, really important that we, we can capitalize on it as fully as we can. Finally, Constantine, what is the off-ramp when it comes to Russia, Ukraine? How can we get back to a situation where there isn't warfare on the continent of Europe? I think I said on Question Time last year in March when the war first broke out that I think the likely outcome is going to be that Ukraine ends up conceding that Crimea is Russian and giving away portions of the two eastern regions, the Lugansk and Donetsk regions, in exchange for what I think it needs, which is permanent security. And I don't mean 
you know, words on a piece of paper. I mean, some kind of arrangement, whether that looks like NATO membership or, you know, a UN peacekeeping force or whatever creative solution might be created. I think the thing that would be foremost in Ukrainian minds is making sure this never happens again and it can't physically happen again. And in exchange for that, I do think you'll understand this even better than I. I mean, the value of Crimea to Ukraine is actually quite small. The value of Crimea to Russia strategically, culturally, historically is, is very high. Because it's where its navy has been based for hundreds of years. Yeah, well, it's its centre for Russia to project its power into the Black Sea and beyond. The Mediterranean, the outside world. Exactly. Uh, and so giving that up would be a big deal. And of course, it would be a massive personal humiliation to Vladimir Putin. So I think once you start messing with Crimea, you, you're getting yourself into a lot of danger. But I have to say, I think the truth is that neither side is tired of fighting yet. And so until that happens, I don't really see that you're going to make any progress in negotiations because from the Russian side, the casualties, while to Western eye, they seem extraordinarily high. And of course, you know, 100,000 is the numbers that are being bandied about is huge. As you know, from Russian history, Russia has an appetite or a tolerance for casualties that is quite unlike almost any other country in Europe. So yeah, 25 million in the Second World War. Yeah. And, and, across the whole of the Soviet Union. You know, the Great Patriotic War, as we call it, was an exception in, in some senses. But look at the Winter War against Finland, a war actually I think that is much more like the one that we're talking about here, in which the Soviet Union sacrificed hundreds of thousands of men in absolute slaughter in Finland against a much smaller country for very little territorial gain. But they were prepared to make those sacrifices for quite a long time before they relented. So I think that's how it looks from the Russian perspective. The casualties are not troubling them yet. And on the Ukrainian side, of course, they're fighting for their survival. And from their end, while it's a brutal war, they're doing very well. And as the West ramps up its support, we saw in, in the last week, Bradley armored fighting vehicles from the US. The Poles are talking about Leopard 2 tanks. You know, you're looking at more support with heavier and better and more modern weaponry from the West. So the Ukrainians, they're not on the back foot. They've made territorial gains in the last part of the last year. And so I just don't think either side is tired of fighting, frankly. And so the off-ramp is for them to get to that point first, and then it depends what the map looks like at that point before you can really talk about how the negotiations are going to go. But as I say, I think from the beginning, I've said the likely outcome is Ukraine gives some things away or acknowledges the things that it lost in 2014 formally. But in exchange, the Ukrainians, I would imagine, feel that they must get permanent security and that would look like something like Ukraine joining NATO as Sweden and Finland by the way have now done I think this is from a strategic point of view this has been a disaster for Russia an absolute disaster no matter how it ends you know unless they're able to turn the tide and you know conquer Ukraine which I don't think is going to happen the response internationally has been I think far worse than what Russia expected it's been a very heavy price for not a lot of gain so far. Well, Constantine, I know you have dear family in both Russia and Ukraine. You feel this conflict very, very personally. Thanks a lot for sharing your views with us. And above all, thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. Thanks for having me, Liam. Always great to chat with you. So there you go, Alison. That's Constantine Kissin, author of An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, published in 2022 by Constable, and he's co-founder with his fellow comedian Francis Foster of Trigonometry, a YouTube channel which now has, wait for it, 370,000 subscribers. I absolutely love Trigonometry and it's a huge pleasure 
to hear you talking to Constantine Liam. I'm sure listeners will think, as I did, that we could have listened to you talking for hours, such an intelligent, thoughtful guy. I think what what jumps out at me, really, and what, like you, I was punching the air at moments reading the book, he's talking about the West has values worth defending. And it's strange, but it's just a painful truth, really, that we do need now the outsiders to come and remind us of that. What we've seen in the West, this has cropped up on Planet Normal before, is the expansion of what they call luxury beliefs, beliefs that can be held by people who don't, as Constantine's family, live in a totalitarian society where being able to get food, let alone a decent education, cannot be taken for granted. And I really welcome that particularly from his book. It's stated very, very powerfully. We have lost gratitude for the amazing society which the wartime generation bequeathed us. I often think of them, Liam. I often think of my grandparents and great-grandparents' generation who laid down their lives so that their (laughs) great-grandchildren could diss everything that they died for. But it's a terrific book. Highly recommend it. I was struck by many things that Constantine said for him to say with his huge knowledge of not just Russia, but Ukraine as well. Dear family, in both countries, he has, uh, I know, for him to say a couple of times during that interview that he thinks neither side is yet tired of fighting does suggest that this ghastly conflict is going to continue for much of 2023 at least. But I did want to end just by talking about his book a little bit more. If you look at the chapter headings, Trust Me, West is Best, A Reality Check for Westerners, Stop Feeling Guilty About Race, Whiteness and Slavery, Free Speech and White Matters, How Language Conceals the Truth, Why We Need Journalists, Not Activists. It really is, I think, a well-timed book, and it's one that uses simple but straightforward language to convey complex, sophisticated and powerful ideas, and I think that's the mark of good writing. And I do think that outsiders or partial outsiders, people a bit like me and you, Alison, who weren't necessarily born to make our living with a pen in our hands, certainly the people that we sprang from didn't do so. And people like Constantine, who are first generation immigrants. I do think, if I may say so, we make the best journalists because we are able to be insider outsiders, people who feel lucky every day to do what we do rather than being born to do what we do. And I know from knowing Constantine for quite a long time now that he feels every day how lucky he is to live in the West with his charming wife, Alina, and now their baby boy, making their living honestly, speaking openly, truth to power. And I'm personally really glad he's here. So that was author and podcaster Constantine Kissin speaking back in January. In March, Planet Normal landed a really big interview. The last interview, in fact, with former Chancellor Nigel Lawson. Age 91, Lord Lawson still drove headlines with his observation that the Conservative Party needs to, quote, completely reinvent itself if it is to regain power. He died just a couple of weeks after joining me on Planet Normal. As a share of GDP, Lord Lawson, our tax burden is now at a 70-year high. Philosophically, does that bother you? Well, it's certainly undesirable and unsatisfactory. Do you think it's good for the British economy that the tax burden's the highest since 
Clement Attlee? No, I don't think it is. And would you like to see a Conservative government bring that tax burden down? Well, I would like to see that, but the Conservatives have been in office for an unusually long time, and I don't see that they're likely to be able to bring it down. Rishi, the new Prime Minister, is a good guy, and I think in the circumstances he was the right choice as a successor to Boris, but I don't think that he's going to be known for his tax cutting. The government's planning to increase corporation tax from 19 to 25% in April, as, as you know, Lord Lawson. That will be the first rise in corporation tax for over 50 years at a time when the economy is fragile. Should the Chancellor rethink that move? Well, I do think that he should, but uh, we shall see. I mean, I'm coming to the end of my life. I'm in my 90s, and I don't expect for the short time that remains to me, I don't expect to see much change. That doesn't make me happy, but it's a fact. When he wanted to be Conservative leader, he campaigned last summer, of course, you'll remember. Jeremy Hunt said the rate of corporation tax should go down to 15%. He said in the past it should be 12.5% as it is in the Republic of Ireland. He's ascribed specifically the policies of you and then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher creating the environment, the entrepreneurial room for manoeuvre that inspired him to become a businessman, to make money, to form companies. And yet he doesn't seem to be doing the same for the current generation of young people. I don't think that there's anything new to come from the Conservative Party as it now is. It is going to have to reinvent itself, but I don't see that coming soon. Margaret Thatcher was, of course, a conviction politician. You were a conviction politician. Very much so. You took risks, you made history, you got things done. Do you see conviction politicians in today's Conservative Party? Well, I don't really know today's Conservative Party. I do have some old friends in the party who are still alive, not so many, but I don't want to sound boastful in any way. But I think that... My time, my period at the top of the party and very close to the top was a good time, both for the country and for the party. What's it like to give a budget in the House of Commons to have the papers post headlines like Nice One Nigel, to see the impact of your bold policies on the country, to see your policies actually working and generating wealth and prosperity? Well, it's very kind of you, Liam. I think there is little doubt that the policies were successful. Not, I'm sure, faultless, but they were successful. And I think we have benefited as a country from that enormously. But, you know, the past is past. I'm coming very close to the end of my career and my lifetime. And... Uh, I find it slightly more comfortable to look back on the past, which was, I would say, successful, rather than to 
speculate on what might happen in the future. What's your proudest memory when it comes to politics? Oh, this, this sounds very conceited. But I do think that we, as the Thatcher government, left the country in a much better state than we found it. It's a lot less controversial to say that these days than it was at the time. Right. Quite right. It must have been daunting coming into politics in the 70s with Britain very much in decline, very tumultuous industrial relations, the IMF bailout in 1976. Well, I came into politics in a way that's connected with that. I had been a journalist for many years and was writing about what governments were doing wrong, as journalists do. And I thought that if I knew better, I ought to get into politics and have a go at doing it. So that's how it happened. And how difficult was it at the time to push those policies through? A lot of what the Thatcher government did was quite controversial. Mm. Did you ever lose faith? Obviously, you famously fell out with Margaret Thatcher. We'll come on to that. That was a lot later. But the general philosophical thrust of what you were doing, lower tax, less regulation, no, more enterprise. I was very much in line with my own thinking as it had developed. People remember my resignation, which was over a trivial thing, really. You fell out with Mrs. Thatcher's advisor, Alan Walters, didn't you? Yes, that's right. But I always felt that this was an error on her part, as one would perhaps have. <laughs> an error on her part. But if you say to a Prime Minister, as I did say to her, unless you get rid of Alan Walters... It's him or me, you said, basically, didn't you? Yeah. That's a big move for you. Care. It was. And it was not planned, but that's where we had got to. But meanwhile, we had achieved a great deal in government together, very harmoniously. As you outlined in your memoirs, of course, the view from number 11, I think Sir Geoffrey Howe's resignation, your resignation, you two lit the touch paper for the beginning of the end of Margaret Thatcher. What was it like to watch her from the back benches? basically self-implode? Well, it was very sad, I thought. I don't think it was any good for the Conservative Party, nor any good for the country. But uh, what happens, happens. Did you feel a bit of guilt? You were an extremely powerful Chancellor, a symbol to a lot of the country. Well, it's a big job. And your resignation certainly gave her a good shove towards the exit mm. door. Well, I think it did play a strong part in that. But that was not the intention. The intention was to preserve and protect the course on which the government had been working for a considerable time. But anyhow, life, whether you're talking about political life or any other form of life, is unlikely to be an unalloyed period of success. Was she the greatest British Prime Minister since Churchill? Yes, in my opinion. She was obviously not perfect. None of us is. But um, I think 
she was certainly the greatest leader that the country has had and the Conservative Party has had since Churchill. And if you remember the depths to which this country has sunk before she came on the scene and was surprisingly, in many ways, elected leader, then the difference is very great indeed. So, although it all went sour at the end, I think that, by and large, it was very successful. You and I have talked over the years about the way the Western world responded to the global financial crisis. We've talked a lot about how central banks have responded, quantitative easing. We've expanded the central bank's balance sheet by almost £900 billion. You've seen a lot of politics and policy over your long life as a journalist and a politician. Are you worried about that? How do you think all this money printing will end? Well, I can't give you a prediction, but I am concerned. I'm not impressed by the intellectual mood of the present day. And how do you think the Bank of England's getting on? I know you were very concerned about inflation in 2020, 2021. The bank was saying until late 2021, this inflation was transitory. But even before the war in Ukraine, we had inflation at a 30-year high, didn't we? Yes, it's been going wrong slowly, but for a long time. I think the bank is an institution that needs to be led by a governor who understands all these things. I think Mervyn was a particularly good governor, but uh, I don't think that since his time, the bank's performance has been particularly great. What are your thoughts on um, Boris Johnson? How did you feel in December 2019 when he won that landslide? Well, I was very keen that he would be elected leader because the direction of government needed to be changed, which meant a change of government, and it meant supporting the Tories under Boris Johnson. It is an enormous talent, but the one thing he's really good at is winning election. There is no Conservative who has ever won the election for Mayor of London. And he did that twice. He did it twice. Mm. So what was his downfall? Well, I think that I just think sorry, it's a very sweeping statement. But I think there are various characteristics which made this a serious problem. The range of characters which are necessary to be a successful politician at the peak of government are very difficult to sum up. But there's no doubt that Boris has some of those characters, but not all. Do you think he'll make a comeback? No, I don't think so. If he does make a comeback, I am not going to be depressed but I don't see it. In 2013, you were, I think, the first very, very senior mainstream conservative who wrote via an article in the Times 
that you thought we should leave the European Union. Oh, yes. Have we taken back control? You know, we have taken back some control, but it was the only way to go. I mean, the European Union was something which didn't correspond with where the British people were or where the needs of the economy were. I mean, what was of the first importance was that we should recover our desire for self-government. That was what it was all about. It was not possible within the constraints of membership of the European Union to exercise self-government. And I had felt for a very long time that, right or wrong, we were a country of sufficient strength to govern ourselves and not be governed by others, which is what the membership of the European Union involves. So here we are. I've got one last question, if I may. And my last question is, you are a very significant figure in British post-war well, history. Well, I was once. <laughs> How would you like to be remembered? Well, one doesn't go into politics for reasons of vanity. I hope, obviously, that I will be remembered as a leading member of a government which changed everything in this country, not just economic, but it embraced that and went further. Lord Lawson, thanks so much for talking to me. Well, thank you, Liam. Well, as I say, and I won't say it again, I don't think I've got anything <laughs> to say of any interest. <laughs> well, there you go, Alison. He's um, a real honour to talk to as I say, a giant of British politics. And he's sharp, interesting, mischievous to the end. Yes. Laughing. Rishi won't be known for his tax cutting, he says. Corporation tax shouldn't rise. He's not impressed with the leadership of the Bank of England since Mervyn King. Certainly isn't, And no. then th that incredible rapprochement with, with Margaret Thatcher. I must say that after the interview, we enjoyed lunch together. We talked for another hour he was recalling in incredible detail a lecture he gave in 1984, the famous Mays Lecture. Economic historians will know all about that, where he basically flipped round the whole economic orthodoxy of how Western economies run themselves, paving the way for Bank of England independence. He was recounting cabinet meetings, literally telling me where people were seated and, and what they said. It was, you know, journalism isn't always easy, but it was a huge pleasure and an honour for him to invite me to go and see him and to talk to him on tape, albeit quite briefly. I thought it was a privilege to listen, and I'm sure Planet Normal listeners will like me. I felt it was very moving as well, because I think Nigel Lawson clearly rates you, rates your economics knowledge, your work as a journalist. And I felt a strong sense that you were kindreds, although you, he's clearly your senior by sort of uh, 40 years. But I sort of felt you have to carry the torch, co-pilot. And I also felt that there he was, you know, in Downing Street with Margaret Thatcher next door, 
those two astonishing, brilliant people bestriding the national landscape like colossuses. And now we have Jeremy Hunt as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who, as you say, is about to put up corporation tax. I mean, it does feel like we've fallen among lightweights, to be polite, doesn't it? It's so easy for us as, you know, scribblers, we're bystanders, we're commentators, Alison. It really hit me hard. And he, and he really looked at me with a beady eye and, and said, I thought the government was doing something wrong, so I wanted to do something about it. You know, as somebody yeah. who... Yeah, he was a journalist. ...came up through the, the Financial Times, Spectator, mm. when he was, you know, quite late in his life, actually, in his early 40s, he got into Parliament in Leicestershire and Blaby, of course, and rose very, very quickly and became this hugely influential figure. And I do think, yeah, we laughed and joked, it was a lot harder back then to say that his policies, that Margaret Thatcher's policies ultimately did the country good. But even among a lot of my friends on the left, I have many, many friends on the left, as you know, Alison, they acknowledge, albeit behind closed doors, it, it was crazy. We did need to do something about the country. I just wanted to throw a number into this sort of political retrospective. The ONS has just brought out some figures this week, Alison, that in December, at the peak of the latest strike action, absolutely huge number of strikes going on. It felt as if everyone was on strike, the train drivers, mm. the university lecturers, the civil servants, ambulance workers and so on. In December, we lost to strike action 873,000 working days. Okay, So mm -hmm. the number of people who were off work because of strikes. At the height of the winter of discontent, or just before in September 1979, rather than 870 odd thousand days lost, in a single month, we lost 11.7 million days to strike action. It just shows you, as Lord Lawson brought out so brilliantly there, the huge progress that was made, and it was painful, it was difficult. They were getting hammered from all sides, not least in the press, but across the House of Commons. And yet people like him stood tall and they were conviction politicians. Yes. And he speaks slowly. He is, in his own words, frail, but what a powerful thing to say. Absolutely. And as you said, that conviction politician he he said I don't want to sound boastful which did make me <laughs> smile really but my time was a good time and he said I do think that we the Thatcher government left the country in a better state than we found it and however quietly you know understated that was you can't say better than that can you it was a revolution it was a decorous revolution but what he and Margaret did together was phenomenal and did pull our country back from the brink. And I think now we look after 13 years of Conservative government and we can't find many aspects of public life which have been improved. So I did feel incredibly touched by listening to that extraordinary man and thinking about the legacy that they left us and whether that's been squandered. And he did say, didn't he, Liam, the Conservatives are going to have to reinvent themselves. The Conservative Party will have to reinvent itself. And boy, is that the case. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find the podcast so the Planet Normal family can grow. 
Join us next Thursday for another holiday special as we bring you more from the Planet Normal archive. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.